What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we are doing a roundtable discussion on punk and hardcore. It's super fun to just uh, chop it up with some friends talking about this wild music that we love. So stay tuned for that. And please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, please take the time to like it, rate it. And if you could leave a review, that would be awesome. It's been a while since uh, there's been a review. It takes 30 seconds. And for whatever reason, that stuff matters for the pod getting traction. So you can just leave a quick review that says, this pod is awesome. And that would be much appreciated. If you'd like to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and become a monthly Patreon. And uh, we try to do a bonus podcast for basically any interview podcast that we do. So if someone gets interviewed, I bring on some friends and we chat about that podcast. We also go through the discography of the person. And uh, those are some of my favorite podcasts. So check it out. And let's get on with the show. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we're trying something new, and that's just talking about shit, uh, which is really nice because we don't have to do any homework. We can just rely on our dearth of knowledge we've acquired over the years of liking <laughs> this insane subgenre of music. So, yeah, um, we're going to talk about some topics and dig into them and help me out. You know him. You love him. He's episode one. He's the legend. Joe Rivas. What's up, Joe? Hey, happy new year. Also helping out the author on the pod. I'm going to you before Daniel, so you can't steal your catchphrase. Uh, it is Ben Edge, a.k.a. Bedge, a.k.a. Ben Merlis. What's up, Ben? What's going on? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> a little getting back. And it's the most well-dressed man on the pod. It's Dan Sant. What's up, Dan? Hey, man, what's going on? So, yeah, this uh, I just wanted to, to do some topics here and dig into hardcore a bit, because uh, the second question that we ask is one that Ben asked me when he was interviewing me for episode 100. And I was talking about it and chatting with Ben. And I was like, man, I really want everyone else's opinion on this stuff. So. Uh, whatever. I curated some questions, but to start off, this is a fun one that I've, I've kicked around forever. And maybe it was a little more hypothetical before like the misfits reunions, like before we were able to see like how many people the misfits actually drew. But, uh, the question I'm posing to all you guys, uh, is if minor threat did a reunion show and it's a $5 reunion show and you have six to 12 months notice, so there's no excuse. If you, you know, you got plenty of warning, you can get it off work. You have a way to get there. Where do you do it? And how many people show up? Dan, what do you think about this? I think the only answer that is, is valid is they would only do it as a political thing. So maybe like on the mall, like they've done in the past as Fugazi or something like that. 
on the National Mall. Or, you know, because I don't want to live in a world where more people go to a (laughs) Have Heart reunion. No disrespect to Have Heart, but (laughs) I don't want to live in a world where Minor Threat is outshined by that. But I also don't want to live in a world where Minor Threat play the, you know, the Oakland Oracle and it's a stadium. Like, I don't want to live in that world. And I won't because it's not going to happen. So I would think the only place to do it is in a protest manner in an area where they just show up and it's like, all this money is going to this and we are actually outside the thing we are demonstrating against. Yeah, I didn't even think about doing it at the mall. That'd be wild. And that probably would be the most proper. And uh, But how many people do you think show up? <laughs> God. 50,000. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that's a conservative estimate. That's why it's like mind blowing to me because everyone loves minor threat. Like every single person that like spent a year into punk or hardcore loves minor threat. You know, it's like a lot of people's first band and you'd have like people flying from everywhere, you know? And yeah, you think about like the have heart show was what? 8,000 people. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and like, yeah, they're big, but minor threat, dude. I don't know, Joe. What do you it's think about? The thing is, it's like if you're not in the front, in the front three rows, like to be at the proper hardcore show, what does it? It just won't be the same. Even though you know it's minor threat, it'll still be a happening. You know. But anyway, sorry. Ask Joe. You can ask Joe. What do you think, Joe? Well, yeah. I mean. What you're what you're saying is probably right that it would be in the mall or you know Golden Gate Park or something like that where where I where um it's not some sort of co- corporate corporatized kind of thing although that's really Fugazi because because Ian doesn't call the shots in Minor Threat it's like the whole band makes makes those decisions so that might be a little bit different yeah but that being said it doesn't mean he's gonna go along with some. Yeah, 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 idea, yeah. You know, I, I I agree, but I would think that they would do it like you know, like maybe you know, like when the Descendants did their return in '96 or seven, whenever that was, you know, and sold out eight nights, ten nights, whatever it was at the the whiskey. I think they would do a small club thing like that because they would want to re- <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, for three hundred sixty-five days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know something something like that or you know like five nights in each kind of town in in whatever the local um kind of like the bikini kill shows in a way 800 to 1200 capacity you know theater kind of thing that they would do i don't know then there's a bunch of people that wouldn't get in though you know and that's why i like the idea of of just doing it somewhere huge I, i i agree that a lot of people would miss out but that's that's the breaks (laughs) Ben, Ben, what do you think? Go ahead, Dan. It also, they don't want to be responsible for, I mean, this is so hypothetical because it never happened, but they don't want to be responsible for policing that many people and making sure things are safe and and trying to tell, what is it, 
you know, like thirty to forty thousand people to not slam dance. Yeah, I just can't imagine. <laughs> well, they wouldn't do that at that show, but I can't imagine no, like kidding. like being, you know, like at the mall. It, it, they would definitely have more people than Trump had at his inauguration, but without um, doubt, without doubt. But like, I can't imagine being like in the back. You know, and having to watch my thread on a screen like that, that would be fucking absurd. Yeah, but six stage dive into the refre- the reflecting pool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. You know, Ben, what's your take on this? It's, it's funny. I've thought about this for years. And my answer is the National Mall. And Minor Threat would actually perform on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, not, a, not on a, an actual stage. And 400,000 people would show up because that's how many people showed up at the Million Man March in 1995, according to the National Park Service. So I figured minor threat could draw at least as many people as uh, Louis Farrakhan. And then every, and then the next day, everyone's uh, everyone will be like minor who, who the fuck is this band? Everyone would have an Andy Rooney moment where they were, they were like, I never heard of these guys. Why did they draw so many? And every hardcore kid in the world would say fucking told you so this is an important band. That's was why it, so many people showed up. Yeah. At the million man March, was that like as many, as could fit where people like turned away to d- due to space. No, you could, according, you could do more. You could do according more. to Wikipedia, a conflict arose about crowd size estimates between March organizers and park service officials. National park service issued an estimate of 400,000 attendees, a number significantly lower than March organizers had hoped for a heated exchange between leaders of the March and park service. ABC TV funded researchers at Boston university estimated the crowd size to be about 837,000 members with a 20% margin of error. It's a huge margin of error. Yeah, so yeah it, but it, it just goes to the power structures of, of talking down black achievement by them trying to downgrade as a national industry, trying to, you know, paid by the government to downgrade the amount of people being there. It's, no, yeah, but, yeah. The, but what happened is they upgraded the amount of people because it became, a, it got politicized. So, so they, at first they said 400,000 and then they got, you know, heat on them and they're like, okay, 837,000. Yeah, but that's a different, uh, you said that was a different agency. You said that was Boston university or whatever that had done. No, that. you're right. You're right. ABC, so. you're right. Boston, um, ABC, Boston University. Anyway, the Parks threat, Department is a national, you know, thing run by the government. They have a, they have a dog in the fight to try and under downgrade Black achievement. You know, so that that's my fair enough. My so we'll take say on between four hundred thousand <laughs> and nine hundred thousand showed up, and that was that particular. Uh, uh, administration that would be the Reagan administration. So. No, the Clinton administration. No, this was 1995. Oh, 95. That one. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, do, yeah. it still it doesn't mean it was great for black people in 95. <laughs> Cause, oh, yeah, cause, just because old Slick Willie was playing a saxophone. That's right. Um, um, so I'm, I think Minor Threat could draw. Could draw um, and you know what? The National Park Service could underestimate the amount of people who showed up for Minor Threat. They could do that. Yep. <laughs> All right, here's what I think. I think that, you know, to be fair to everyone, you know, and there's people scared to fly, you got to do it in the middle of the country somewhere. So I think you do it in Denver, Colorado, where the Broncos play. And then you have like some seating on the side, right? So it's like there are some older people that want to see the show. Um, and so it's it's nice for them. 
And then you have the whole like football field for like the, the craziness. So I don't know what that holds. That's fuck. You know what though, Ben, you're right. I think that it's, it's more than a football stadium. You know, I think my well, threat does over a hundred thousand people. If it was at a football stadium, it would have to be the football stadium of uh, that. Uh, the um, football the team formerly known as the Washington Redskins play at, because that's would be the, the local one. Yeah. There's Fair no, there's no way in hell minor threats so playing anywhere can... other than DC. I just think right. like such right. a, such an important part of hardcore is like the road trip, you know, and driving to the show. And there's something I think would be rad about like, just everyone converging on like a show in the middle of the country. Like, I think that would be so rad, but uh, yeah, the mall's a spot and uh minor threat draws a million people. How about that? <laughs> Coming from all over this one, I think. Um, Ben, so for this question that you proposed to me on uh, on episode 100, do you want to lay it out to the guys? Because it's it came a little better from you than how it looks written down. Um, let's see. What did I say? How did I phrase it? Is that har- hardcore was invented on the West Coast, so why does it have to fight for respect? And I, I talked about this on episode 100 about how, you know, hardcore is invented in um, – LA County and Orange County in the very end of the seventies. And then it kind of spreads its way uh, across the country. And then at some point, I mean, obviously DC was a huge deal just after that, but at some point, you know, New York becomes the, the, uh, the gold standard for hardcore. And it kind of just stays that way uh, for the next 35 years from probably about the mid eighties to now. And so I'm just wondering how that came to be and why is the West coast thought of as like kind of a kind of secondary to, to New York. Um, so I don't know. Let's hear everyone's opinion on that. Yeah. Daniel, what's your take on that? I think it is not just punk hardcore. I think it's a societal thing where people view the West coast as being easy living in shorts most of the year, like just chill, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the East coast view life as being harder, you know, we got to shovel our driveways, blah, blah, blah. And then it comes down to the sports element as well, where West coast teams aren't given their due compared to East coast teams because ESPN is, is located on the East coast. Um, and it just comes down to an attitude of like, I mean, it is bolstered by some of the hardest hardcore records coming out of the East Coast in a very formative time for hardcore. So that is the spine that makes this bias happen. Um, but I think it is just a, a, a societal, sociological, subconscious view that life is harder on the and more crucial on the East coast where life is more laid back and a bit more easy going on the West coast. Well, to add on to your point, Daniel, also there's a, there's a bigger conglomeration of large cities like put together where people view themselves as like being from different places there, right? Where California has a huge population, but it's kind of spread through all of California. And so you can kind of just, either lump California together or you can lump like NorCal SoCal without like realizing that there's all these giant populations in different places. Um, but well, the other that, thing- it's also viewed that way 
from ac- across the country that <laughs> California is LA and SF and that's about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ben, I think that a thing that would be helpful for this discussion would be, you say that uh, hardcore was invented here. Can you like elaborate on some of the bands that you're referring to? I'm talking about the middle class who were from Santa Ana, I believe. And they put out, you know, out of Vogue in 1978 or beginning of 79, super, super fast hardcore record, even by today's standards an extremely fast hardcore record. And then, you know, black flag in the South Bay uh, shortly after that um, circle jerks a little bit after that with group sex. Uh, you have lots of, and then, you know, Black Flag and Circle Jerks hit the road. They're like road dogs. Um, well, I think that's a, a massive, massive important factor. When we discuss hardcore, because hardcore is not just music, it's not just lyrics, it's not just attitude. It is DIY and do-it-yourself, and Black Flag burst that network of going across the country and showing people where they can stay, who they can hit up, making all these connections, and it became a an absolute you know thing that is hardcore right but I yeah think sonically like okay so middle class does a fast beat but the majority of like black flag circle jerks you know and then all the orange like the tsol's adolescence uh you know agent orange like these bands like they're they're more considered punk now maybe because right. they're not doing like the fast beat so i kind of wonder if in most people's perspectives, like the birth of hardcore is <clears throat> like DC and then Boston right after, right? And New York. So it's like it, it really did start there in most people's brains. Well, Bad Brains well, at CB's is what, 79? Maybe a little later. Uh, oh, wait, that, they did that the video black- where they're all in like new wave kind of looking stuff, but they're still ripping. Oh, yeah. Probably around that time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, great band, uh, influenced by the Dickies from L.A. Uh, by their own admission, but, right, right, right. <laughs> but, but but making it faster than the Dickies. But 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 I, mean, I totally. So the, it just depends on if what you think sonically hardcore is like. Right, and, and, and I think I that's of maybe we'll, we'll, myself go included. It's it's the fast beat, you know. Yeah, I actually think it's what is considered hardcore has evolved over the years and it's evolved in a way that favors the East coast, which is mosh parts, metallic, you know, breakdowns. And, but and I'm not and, even talking mosh parts and tempo changes. I'm just saying like doing a faster tempo than black flag plays, you know, so you have it circle jerks on group sex, but it's, it's the last song, right? Like it's the red tape tempo, right? Uh-huh. You, you don't get that as much. But you do get it when you, you know, go to DC and then you have like SSD, DYS, like these bands coming out of Boston, you know, and then you get them out of early New York. You know, but like, I, don't, right. I don't think hardcore is just synonymous with speed. It's synonymous with aggression, uh, the lack of melody, the attack, the, the in your face in the crowd parts that are less more performative as punk was it's way more like this is it this is our 25 person scene and we're going fucking mental no i agree but i'm just i'm I'm saying it is it's part of agreeing with what ben says that like the it has shifted to the east coast like definitely you know like i think of that would be a valid reason 
is that people consider the birth, you know, New York, Boston, DC, you know, and I think the LA orange County, you know, end of the seventies, very beginning of the eighties bands we were talking about, they're like the transitional stage between punk and hardcore, like the missing link type bands. And I'm, I'm actually writing an article with a guy who used to write for Flipside back around that time uh, about these bands. And it, and it's completely, it's like, if you're a hardcore kid growing up after that time, you think, look at those bands as punk. And maybe if you're a punk rocker who was going to the mask in 77, you look at those bands as like hardcore hooligans who ruin the whole scene. So it's like, no one, like they're like, no one wants to claim them for their own uh, yeah, scene. So they're, 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 they kind of fall, they fall through the crack, obviously wild, like adolescents, the circle jerks and black flag are wildly popular. I think black flag gets respect on the East coast, but of yeah, course, in the context but, of punk. But, but here's the thing. These bands were only labeled as punk post them being hardcore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As things got harder then retroactively five to 10 years later black flag is regarded regarded as a punk band but when black flag was around in its formative early years it was hard as fuck and regarded as brutal hardcore you know right the goal the goal post has moved you know in 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 a harder direction that favors the east coast but the same thing happened with with hip hop where, you know, it started in New York and, you know, it went through a bunch of, uh, it went through this, this power struggle and it ended up being the South dominating the sound of hip hop to this day for the last, probably around 20 years. But, um, like the South's got something to say. Yeah. So, well, and, <laughs> and, and like, I don't know what accounts for that, you know, like that's a good question. That's not for me to answer. Cause I don't have that much interest in Southern hip hop, but um, it's funny how things like that happen, you know, blues started in the, uh, in the South and then the power base completely shifted to Chicago and the blues became electrified, uh, you know, decades on. So you can't, the people who invent something, almost like the sacrificial lamb for the people who thrive after the thing is off and running. Well, and as we said on the pod, it ended up that way also, right? Like it, it ended up not, not that the power shifted to the South, but it ended up, I don't think that there's like an East coast only power structure anymore. I mean, like I mentioned on 100, like one of the biggest hardcore bands that band knocked loose, you know, from, from Kentucky you know, you do have bigger California hardcore bands like Rotting Out. And if you look at uh, Rotting Out and Ceremony, right, and Terror. And then if you look at some of the hype bands from 2020, you know, Gulch, Drain, you know, they're there. It's Things are spread out more. Oh, I, I don't think that I, – I don't think the statement is true per se. I think it's very hard for West Coast acts to get – East Coast recognition in some arenas. But I think like if you're a good hardworking band, regardless where you're from, the the thing that to touch back on what you're saying is the East Coast seems to hold a lot more congregating in each other's scenes a lot more because 
it is, you know, Philly is close to New York, which is close to, you know, Boston to an extent, you know, all of these things, if there's a fest going on, you can easily go. Whereas, you know, the length of California is like three times as long as any of those drives. But the other thing I, I was, it wasn't just bands from New York are bigger than bands not from New York. What I'm saying is, New York controls the narrative. So you have bands that are from all over the country that are basically created themselves in the style of New York hardcore. In in other words, if you're a New York hardcore sounding band from LA, New York still wins in that equation. (laughs) Don't get it twisted. You're trying to be from New York. Like, like the the New York is controlling the narrative. You're trying to sound like a band that, wrote amazing music that came from New York. I don't think you're like aping the fact that you're from the Lower East Side or something. Well, that's what I mean. The, yeah, the sound, I mean, the sound of hardcore, the sound of hardcore is being defined by New York more than any other city. Well, where well did they it's, get it from? it's undeniable that like New York put out more great hardcore records than anywhere else. Yeah. Right. I uh not well. DC's close. DC's yeah, close. I don't know. LA's don't know. good too. But you guys LA's might, really you good guys too, might so. argue for DC, but New York's of course. New York's number one. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. Well, fair enough. I mean, like, yeah. Would it, okay? So even even maybe a naysayer, Ben, their top three, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Their top yeah. three. I mean, like for sure, and undeniable that like crosses multi multi generations with no fall off. And Joe, this is where I wanted to bring you in a bit because they're I'm old. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. A, a little bit, but also very <laughs> fucking handsome. George Clooney esque, maybe, um, <laughs> but there, there is a California f- fall off in like the later eighties, right? Like this is when like straight edge hardcore is doing its thing and coming up, but, what is like punk in California, like in that 86 to 88 before Bad Religion Suffer comes out? Like, well, RKL, I mean, how, how many people is RKL drawing in Los Angeles? Uh, they're doing pretty good, I would think. I mean, seven seconds, uh, you know, walk together, rock together is 85, right? Instead, uniform choice. This, yep, and this is when. When those, that, those, later. F- those Fenders shows and Olympic auditorium shows are drawing like 4,000 people. Like, right. That's but, but 87, the 88. Crowd, the, the biggest crowds are for when the UK bands come out. Yep. You know, it's like the biggest is when like GBH is playing. And the UK which, controlled the narrative. And speaking of which, you know, Discharges started in, you know, Stoke on Trent in 1977. So I'm not sure some band in from California releases a record in 79, how they're the first just hardcore band. I, I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Oh, cause discharge didn't sound like a hardcore band until 1980. You can listen to the demos on Spotify. They're to, they sound like a completely different band in the 70s. They didn't sound like a hardcore band to you. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Cause this is all about perspective. Yeah. I think TSOL is a hardcore band. Someone from, from New York doesn't think that way. That's fine. That's their, you know, and you, we, we allow this narrative 
to perpetuate that New York has 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 the uh, the lo- the lock on this. I don't I don't agree with that. I never have. We got this shit right here. It's good. It always has been. We've had great bands. Yeah, no, I know, but like the there weren't that many bands putting out great albums in '87, right? Like '87 is a, a weird year for like the the punk lane, right? Or maybe we should be saying the hardcore punk lane, right? Like Uniform Choice is like getting past their prime. Instead is raging. Fair enough. Final Conflict puts out a great LP, I believe, in '87. Mm-hmm. RKL puts out maybe their best LP in '87, but there's just not a ton of stuff. You know, meanwhile, on the East Coast, like you're all the rev stuff is like popping, right? Well, okay, so that's Chain. that's the that's the difference is is there's a label there to support them. I mean, Epitaph here, but um, actually, I don't know what Epitaph was doing before Suffer. There right, was, that's exactly. like L seven records, exactly. Okay, just, yeah. So, I mean, do we we think it's just a lack of label support i think I, so I there's a ton of there's plenty of labels like byo is going sst is still around they're just sh- like sst is just shifting other stuff right, right. well they're doing like, yeah st- stoner rock you know so, well the sound garden and you know this well the well, sound the thing, well go for it the, the thing that that makes you know these things it's it comes down to strange just instances of single people or duos because if you look at it jordan is into these bands collects all these different bands to put the things out it then becomes a legendary label because all of this great sounding stuff is all on the same label if sst greg ginn was into straightforward blazing hardcore at the time he quite possibly could have gathered many bands that sounded like that that were around at the time to put together but Greg Gim was into experimental stoner shit, so SST traveled along that route, you know? Well, also, in New York, in LA, we had a, a head start on New York, and there was this period by 87 or so where, you know, things might cool off a little bit, and and then in New York... Or, or at least evolve into things that we don't identify as hardcore anymore. And then in New York, you kind of have the same thing in the early 90s, you know, a little later on since, uh, you know, six or seven or eight years after the scene really gets going. You have Rev putting out, of course, Rev is but at this point an Orange County label, but Rev putting out all these kind of post-hardcore bands and... Uh, you know, quicksand being a huge deal and ABC no Rio and, and things that are not straight ahead hardcore anymore. Like that just happened for LA earlier with, you know, TSOL getting weird in 83 with uh, beneath the shadows, whatever the shadows. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so every scene has that period of like, okay, we did the dicka, 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 straight ahead stuff. Now, what do we do next? Let, we're bored. Let's try different things. And it just happened earlier for LA because LA started earlier. Well, and it happened earlier for DC as well. Because DC started earlier. I mean, marginally than, than New York. Right. The other thing that I think is for, for California, you know, post-Suffer, you have Suffer that like 
inspires like an entire scene, you know, and, and no effects like, you know, being inspired by RKL and no effects like getting good and these bands and then fat records and epitaph, like getting started in the early nineties and then punk blowing up. I think that a lot of California gets lumped in to like that new school epitaph sound, right. Which is like a fully different thing like that. The punk explosion, right. And warp tour and the green days and the offsprings and so forth. So it like kind of like diverges even further from like hardcore. Totally. Yep. Um, and that's interesting. We talked about this on another episode, like bad religion suffer and no control are like technically speaking mel- melodic hardcore records, but they're the influence is not felt in the hardcore scene. It's felt it's in this next generation of kind of epitaph mm. fat records. What? Well, no, I'm talking about like bad religion being a huge influence on, um, you know, Pennywise, no effects, um, no use for your name, those kind of bands, as opposed to like more traditional hardcore bands, well, even right. though bad, bad religion is a melodic hardcore band their their influence is more on the bands on fat records and epitaph. I, I yeah. Joe, if Zoli, if Zoli sounded like Brett, I mean like a uh, Greg, um, if that's that's ignite would be bad religion I don't. oh yeah i think of ignite as more uniform choice influence but but then they get kind of more melodic as the years go on but like you know band like pennywise which is clearly bad religion junior you know yes bad religion mixed with like a little bit of speed metal um yeah i remember like reading something a long time ago that i thought was interesting which was someone was saying like Screeching Weasel was such a, a huge influence on pop punk, but like the bands, they took like the silly songs and they didn't take like the smart songs. And they thought that that was like such a tragedy, you know, that like, cause yeah. some Screeching Weasel songs have great lyrics, like the science of myth, you know, and like what would have happened if like pop punk went that way, you know, taking the smart stuff instead of like the, the bubble gummy type stuff. But, uh, that's, that's maybe another topic for another day. But I, I I actually agree with Ben here a bit that the Bad Religion Suffer, it, it influenced like that epitaph stuff more, like the stuff that's in the punk lane. Like, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know. I guess like that would be a question. What, what melodic hardcore bands in the 90s are we thinking of, you know? And where do we draw their influence from? What are the most popular uh, melodic hardcore bands in the 90s? Well, I have a great story that kind of uh, almost disproves my point, but not not totally. Um, yeah, on the Where It Went podcast, which I recommend everyone listen to. Shout um, out. Friend of the pod, Greg Pollard, is uh, one of the three hosts of the show. Um, th- they interviewed uh, some of the guys from Gorilla Biscuits and, and uh, Walter met Siv at a skate spot in Queens and Siv was singing We're Only Gonna Die by Bad Religion to himself. And Walter was like, this guy's a really good singer. And that's how he picked him to be the singer of the band. And so in a very, very roundabout, convoluted way, Bad Religion has something to do with Gorilla Biscuits, who are like sort of the, you know, peak melodic hardcore, East Coast melodic hardcore band of all time. So, uh, but in general, I, I'd say Bad Religion 
their influences felt much more greatly in the the kind of warp tour epitaph fat sort of west coast centric scene sure yeah yeah um all right well i think that, that could lead us into our next question that i had which is just defining like what is new school punk and what is like pop punk and what is a band like lifetime you know i think that that's so interesting like breaking these things out um you know, to shout out to another podcast, you know, most people listen to this, listen to Axe to Grind as well. And uh, they were talking about metalcore in some episode. And I was like, I was begging for him to like give a definition of like what they consider metalcore. Cause I don't even know like what is considered metalcore because it's another thing kind of like these things that is such perspective of what you call it. Like, I don't know if there's a agreed upon definition. So I'm always curious of people's opinions. But Ben, what do you think differentiates like these things? From pop punk from new school? Yeah. And then also like where does what what is a band like Lifetime? It's funny, I hadn't heard the term new school since the nineties. And now, of course, ironically, uh, you know, what you're talking about, like most of those kind of fat records bands that they're not new anymore, but I guess they're new school. Uh Lifetime I always thought of as like sort of the middle point between um, um, hardcore melodic punk, which is the space that um, Gorilla Biscuits also occupies. Um, But, you know, Lifetime to me still has more of a hardcore feel to them than your standard uh, lag wagon, for example. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm using them as a, as, as an example. I know you for a name, whatever, what, what have you. Um, I can, I can definitely tell, like, I mean, we're not even talking about early lifetime. That's just, you know, no, no, no. Talk about what, like the, the, the last two LPs pre-breakup. Right, right, right. Um, even if I had heard those without knowing anything about the band, I think I would be able to tell like, oh, these are hardcore kids playing this music. I just think um, that like, even a band like No Use for a Name has, they have more, attack in the vocals than lifetime does you know i think that lifetime the vocals like lean more towards like a pop punk than a band like no use for name or 80 fingers louis right um, but the vocals are only one element of a band right because that's fair that's fair like one either one fourth or one fifth even though your average listener of music i think gives more weight to vocals than the every other instrument put together but then when you get into playing music yourself I think you can, you know, he, treat every element more equally. But they're not equal, dude. The vocals are more important because, like, take either of those bands, No Use for a Name or Lifetime, and have, you know, Glenn Benton from Deicide singing on them. Like, what is that? <laughs> Changes everything. <laughs> you know, like, there's, <laughs> there's certain extremities in the vocals that, like, make something something. Although, yep, who knows right. what the fuck that would be. But, I mean take a, a lifetime song and make every beat halftime. Like that would completely fucking change everything too. And that's no, just that's the drums. Fair. That's totally fair. That's totally fair. Uh, Joe, what's your take on this? Like what, what differentiates like pop punk from like that epitaph, uh, fat record stuff. And then where do you consider a band like lifetime? Well, I would, I'll start with lifetime. I would just say that they're a, a post hardcore band. Um, 
you know, like like Ben said, you can definitely tell that they were hardcore kids, and they all were. Um, I don't. Well, that gets a little tricky though, because you could say like, well, so does Moby sound like a hardcore band? You know, yeah, can you tell? Like, can you tell that he was a hardcore kid? No, because right, it's totally like, post hardcore. I always think of like yeah. being lower, where Lifetime was fast. Yeah, I mean, it depends on when when in Lifetime's career we're talking about as well. Too, we're talking background and no, 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 we're talking Jersey Best Dancers and Jersey's Best, right? So, so by then they got influenced by what was what was happening on the West Coast with with all the new school stuff. So, you know, and altered their sound a bit. You know, with you know, uh, probably from like Star Sixty Nine stuff on, is yeah. when they started to change you know adding more melody instead of the the heavier you know you know uh the stuff that's on background per se you know um you know what happened was the singer and the bass player lived together um in the summer 94 they listened to 24 hour revenge therapy every single day and that was a huge influence i think you hear it mostly in the lyrics but you know think about 24 hour revenge therapy and then make the beat harder and faster and it's pretty close it's getting there yeah it's interesting daniel what's your take it comes down to taste level and the formation of where you come from um the thing that makes lifetime different is they grew up in basement shows that were regimented hardcore spaces do you know what i mean whereas uh, a lot of these new school slash surf punk bands grew up in a different space a golden voice show arena uh not saying arenas but i'm saying in space where shows were being put on by golden voice you were getting um tickets through Ticketmaster and things like that. There's a barrier. Yeah, there's a barrier. There's a whole different interaction with the crowd. There's a whole different... There is a difference between the crowd and the band, whereas in the places Lifetime grew up and started playing, and a a lot of these other things like Game Face and, and whatnot, they even though that, you know, that's a poppy version on the West Coast, that is very different than the, the Fat Records Epitaph bands even though the sound may be kind of similar, it's just because they grew up at say like offenders or not even fenders like a, a spankies or something, you know? So that formation of who they were as hardcore kids somewhat lends just a un- intangible way that the music is going to come out sounding compared to, you know, everybody liking bad religion and, and trying to push that genre with the triggered drums and the do that, do do that. <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> uh, um, that kind of thing, you know, and being on skate videos or STV or whatever, it's a, it's just a different world. Like it's why, you know, there's those of us who've liked everything, but the majority of that stuff that we liked when we were, getting into it and coming up we've left most of it behind 
but something like as urgent and as heartfelt and as no bullshit as a lifetime or something like that has maintained and has longevity because there appears to be less fluff and more heart upon looking back at it all. And that's not to say that no use for a name didn't, you know, write heartfelt songs that are very political and things like that. It just, by aligning yourself in the, in that scene, it just doesn't have the same modicum of truth to me. Right. Like in the warp tour world. Yeah. 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 And, and life, lifetime was a huge influence on, on pop punk, especially in the two thousands, but we can't use those standards to go retroactively judge lifetime as a pop punk band, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, the other that's what you guys like, just did with hardcore. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's what <laughs> well I'm complaining <laughs> about other people doing it. I don't, <laughs> by, by, by the nineties, you know, like a lot of music is just whatever label you want to slap on it anyway. And like what scene you're playing on. Yeah, right. by you're playing in, right? Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you think about what what gets considered under the hardcore umbrella in the '90s, you know, it's 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 really big. Right. You know, it's, it's not all a sonic thing, and I think it would be the same for what gets considered like punk and so forth. Well, I, th- I think a lot of that new school stuff gets gets the bad rap as well because because of the major marketing that got behind them. You know that you know that epitaph and, and fat records pushed which the surf videos and all the, all that stuff you guys just talked about warp tour all of that all that stuff had a bad taste in old school guys mouths you know like you know like tony uh, uh, i was gonna use tony and, and he loves all of those bands but you know ill pute never got nothing and now here's you know you know good riddance that owes everything they do to those old bands blast yeah let's use blast so so clifford gets nothing and russ gets everything you know um so there's a bad taste in in the mouth of those guys that that you know they didn't they were never paid i guess you know not that it's all about money but but it certainly helps and then and then you throw in what also was happening heavily in the 90s is all the crust stuff so you have all the profane existence people going oh that's not even hardcore at all you know or punk or anything so you have that battle going on too and then it doesn't help with people like you know you know heart attack with with their you know uh stringent doctrine that they that they you know put forth you know so i don't know what i'm saying yeah well no, no but that, that makes sense it's a good point it makes it's, sense. it's that there's a lot of bands that are that are doing well in like that popular lane and then there's a bunch of of naysayers from all sides yeah right? like the the crustier punk the more political yeah. punk and hardcore and then also like the old school that's like a little bitter about stuff getting popular when they yeah. didn't necessarily have their due. Yeah. And, and I don't, I'm not saying that Clifford or Tony or any of those guys are better, but, but you know, guys on the periphery, 
you know, like maybe Tony's friend is like, you guys should have been, it should have been you guys, not, not them, not these new kids. What do they know? They, they didn't suffer like we did, you know, like all that stuff, you know? Yeah, that's fair. And then maybe that also like plays into why some of that stuff doesn't have like the, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it holds up as well in hindsight to a lot of people. And maybe that's why is it like people think that they had everything like in their hands. Right. So then when something gets less popular, it doesn't get as much sympathy because like it really was like the shit for a while. Yeah. But it's you know, also it's like, like people were rooting for it to fail. So when it finally goes away, they're like, finally, the other reason it's retro retrospectively derided is because it's kind of like the, my first punk band starter kit for a lot of people who grew up in the nineties and so people got into these bands when they were 13 or 14 and just discovering punk. And then they promptly grew out of it. And so they're like, Oh, that band, I liked them when I was 13. Like they don't, they, it, it's just, it's, there's something about it. That's, it, it was marketed towards young teens, you know, the whole warp tour thing. And like, there's just certain bands people tend to grow out of, and then they don't look at them um, as adults, uh, with the same, um, sort of like, I liked gutter mouth when I was 14. I, I can't listen to a gutter mouth record anymore, but then again, I also like bad religion and I still love bad religion. So yeah, it, it's that's some of that great, stuff just doesn't, some of that stuff just doesn't hold up though. Like let's not that's kid great, ourselves. That's, that's a great I think that no, no use for a name. Okay. Maybe like no use for a name. Of, of course you do Zach, but like, go down the roster of epitaph and fat circa 95, 96. Don't tell me every one of those bands holds up, you yeah, know, but, like, but no, and I'm also like, thing here. you know, before I shoot to you, like, I just want to say like, you, you have a point there, Ben, because I don't even ride for the whole, no use for name catalog. Like I literally love one album, you know? Right. So like, I'm not even, I'm not even going beyond that. Daniel, sorry. I was just saying there's an element when you're getting into this stuff and you're discovering that kind of stuff, there's, there's tons of people who never grew out of it, you know, that this stuff sounds the best to them. But a lot of people, this is their formula gateway into punk and hardcore, right? And so when you start listening to it, you, you're gathering everything. Like, oh, especially pre-internet, you know, this is yeah. way before Spotify. You're just like a basking shark, like inhaling all the things. Oh, this is on Fat too. I'm going to listen to that. Oh, this is on Epitaph. Let me check that out. Oh, Nitro supposedly a good record label like this. Let me check stuff out there. Right. But then you realize, <laughs> wow, there's only like three bands worth keeping <laughs> out of all of this. And you move on, you know, you keep those things with you, but then you discover something like Bad Brains and you're like, Oh my God, this, and there's certain things that you just can't put your finger on it to explain it, but you just know, no, this is real. That other stuff is not. Well, and I think that lifetime is a, is a good one to touch on because they're, Daniel, you did a good job of explaining maybe like what that intangible value is. Right. I mean, like that's a band that the four of us talking here tonight all like. And, you know, sonically, yeah, it's, it's all good. But what is it about that band that makes it special? Um, I don't know. I think that is just like one of those intangible things you can't put your finger on. You know, we could break it down sonically and figure it out, but it's not that. It's like a combination I mean, of like multiple things. 
well, when I first listened, when I first got that Hello Bastards album, um, I had already pretty much drifted away completely from those Epitaph fat bands. You know what? I never really liked that many of those Epitaph fat bands in the first place. I wouldn't say I liked, like sold all my, you know, rec- lag wagon records because I never had a lag wagon record, but like gutter mouth, perfect example. I know they're not on either of those labels, but um, like by 90s, early 96, when I got Oh Hello Bastards, I, I had pretty much given up on them. And like, I was listening to all these straight edge bands and hoping like, Hey, I still like fast music. And that was an era where there were very few straight edge bands or bands in the hardcore scene in quotes, playing fast music. And that album was like a breath of fresh air. Like, Oh God. Like, like it was like a great exhale. Like, Oh, finally someone in the hardcore scene playing fast and fun music. Like, thank God, like more of this, please. And that was, that was where I was at at that point in mid nineties. And that's what made it so great, at least at that point in time. Yeah, and man. it wasn't, it wasn't like gutter mouth part two. It was like, there was substance to it and it was much better music and it was still fast and it was fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, gutter mouth is just a terrible band. Um, yeah. Terrible know, band. I do love the the song on cinema beer goggles, but <laughs> I saw them a couple of years ago and they were so bad, dude. So bad. I think that what they were is for like the people that were into all that, like the new school stuff, they did sound a little bit more raw and the singer was pretty intense live at the time. So I think that that might've been some of the appeal, you know, like, well, what do you think, Joe? Well, I was just going to say they provided the, uh, well, let's, uh, I'm going to try to be political on this. Uh, no, nah, fuck it. They're, they're <laughs> providing the TV punk rock version of, of punk. I thought they were a continuation of the Vandals. I thought the Vandals were still to get still around at that point as well. So you had two really popular goofy punk bands. Yeah, they're kind of in that lane. That's well, what that's, that's what I mean. Aggressive, that's, still aggressive, and a little less melodic. That's that's what I was trying to get at. That they they just provided that you know the 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 safe rebellion version because you could you could find real rebellion in the mid nineties in in hardcore in punk in thrash and, and everything but here was you know this uh packaged version of it that that wasn't as um you you, you weren't going to lose an eye to them you know right you, know you, had, to, I mean? you had to peel down another layer to get to like the the real you, shit and you, you, you know, felt like a bad boy but you weren't really right <laughs> but pre-internet it, it would be hard to find some of the like you know, I guess you can go through zines and like take a guess on like what profane existence band is good. But if you're a teenager, you know, and you have very limited finances for what you can buy, you know, what CD do you buy out of that catalog? You know, if they're listing like 20 releases, right? You know, how do you know if you don't have someone to like tell you what's good? The one in collegiate font with the X's on both sides of the name. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, how we, that's how we got all that great like third rate stuff, you know, several years later, but you oh. know, in 95 to like, if you're like, I like this gutter mouth shit, I want some realer shit than gutter mouth. Like, I don't know yeah. how you find it. You know, if you don't have someone kind of showing you the way. Yeah. But that's usually you do. 
But yeah, I mean, maybe, but not if you're just some kid that is going yeah, to work. I, yeah, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. We're from, I, a, ten, I, we're, we're yeah. from a very fortunate area, Joe, where like yeah. it's steeped in history and like local shows and, and there are like old know, guys like me lifers, yeah you know to show you, <laughs> you know but if you're just a dude that grew up like i don't know i guess there's always gonna be like an older punk dude but also like people aren't always nice you know like we're also fortunate that like the older people from our area were relatively like nice to younger people you know and, well, and i hope also, that do that you're still. also fortunate that the older people in your area had good taste because what if you were around a bunch of older people that are telling you like, no, this gutter mouth party humor shit is the is the pinnacle of punk, you know? <laughs> then you're know, only like going to be like, turned on to more garbage. I've been around <laughs> seventy eight, and trust me, gutter mouth is the apex of punk. It doesn't. Yeah. Matter. <laughs> I've been waiting for this band to come along my whole fucking life, and it's finally here. Give them that's a part of. I, that's I part was, of what. Uh, yeah. Wait, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I will say that Mark from Guttermouth is a really nice guy. So Yep. He was he was a great guy. He he, you know, like we traded phone numbers when I saw them at Spanky's in ninety two with face to face and like I we would talk to each other on the phone for hours and he and I was just like a kid, you know, a little like a fourteen year old with a high voice. It's like and he was like a twenty six year old grown ass man and and like there was nothing creepy. I know people love to say, Oh, that's so creepy. It's like no. He was a nice guy. <laughs> like that's all there is to it. And um, there, there, there's another thing you wanted to talk about, Zach. That a uh, differentiating pop punk from new school. Like how would you how would you break differentiate those two? Break those two into two different categories. Do you have a Do you have an opinion? I never. Th- I just. I completely forgot about the term new school until you brought it up last week because I was calling it all pop punk, and my friend goes offspring isn't pop punk what what makes that pop punk and i'm like you're right yeah like green yeah, day's pop it. punk right yeah green day's pop yeah, punk. yeah 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 so I, I don't know maybe maybe it's something that doesn't matter at all um i just i've always thought that like yeah green day's in a little bit different of a lane than like no effect are, are they maybe they're not maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong and that's the whole like this topic is like there is no difference between pop punk and new school yeah, I don't think there is because they're all searching for pop melodies within the framework of punk. That's so, what so were the pop. Ramones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they right? just happen to be punk because of the magazine, the zine that the scene like was coined as as punk. Yeah. Or the Ramones would have just been like a rock and roll band. They right, that's true. That, you know. Well, they sounded different enough than anything else that came before them that I think the fact that there was a new term to describe them is completely warranted, you know? Like, no yeah. one sounded like the Ramones before the Ramones. Well, I don't know. Like, that, like that? Like, did it, did it, did it, did it with a beat? Yeah, not, with that, not without aggression, yeah. Down-picked no. guitar? Like, nah. But what I'm saying is, on a post, like, you can't go back to to coin they were just being coined punk so you can't call it pop punk at the same time because there's nothing else that was punk to differentiate it against what i'm saying is when punk and hardcore and all of these other strains within are well known uh it starts to become a genre defined as pop punk because you're searching for the melody being the most important part of what you're 
song is written, how it's written, the backups, the the texturing of vocals, the searching for pop hooks within punk is what makes it pop punk is what I'm saying. Yeah, I got you. Can, got you. Is it possible though, Dan, to be a melodic punk band, but not be a pop punk band? Here's an example, Jawbreaker. I don't know if you'd even call them a punk band, but like, is it possible to be melodic punk, but not be pop punk? Yeah, I, I suppose. I I mean, I would. I, a lot of what is being described here as new school, it, as for for the sake of this argument, in my past and my knowledge has either been referred to as melodic punk or pop punk. <laughs> you know, like some of the bands that didn't necessarily want the success or didn't didn't get to be in the lane of success were more referred to as melodic punk because they didn't have the popularity that comes with pop punk, you know? Yeah. But like a band like naked Ray gun or a band like pig boy, like they're definitely, both those bands are melodic. There's no de- denying that they're both punk bands. There's no denying that, but they're completely like outside of the whole epitaph fat records, California sound, like completely not the same thing at all. And I know a lot of, Maybe Peg Boy had crossover appeal to those to the kind of person who would listen to No Effects in the '90s, but I, I just wouldn't call the, those bands pop punk. Agreed, but pop punk also is the name of a genre that kind of rose up around I don't know Green Day's career, essentially. Yeah, you know, right. I guess I always associate yeah. pop punk with like kind of like that vocal, like kind of like the, the snotty vocal, I guess. I don't know. It is hard to, it's hard to explain. You know, the was, nasal it was, singing. It was easier in my head. The, the, the nasal singing, like, like the, the first singing. band I think of is no effects when I think of pop punk. Yeah. And then that, but that's the thing is like, I think new school, when I think of like that Ryan green overproduced, like melodic sound. So, and, and pop punk. Yeah didn't have like that you know it's just a little different and also pop punk was always kind of like mid-tempo in my head not fast so i don't know it, maybe it's, it's all like the fucking same it's all basically the descendants but worse you know <laughs> what i mean like descendants are too good to be a pop punk band like they're too good like you can't call them a pop punk because they're just above it <laughs> maybe that's fair okay now to like <laughs> to a question that is inevitably going to make us sound all like a bunch of fucking fossils uh <laughs> is is punk and hardcore no longer rebellious and uh if that's the case what could make it rebellious again um i'm gonna go first so i set the the tone is not oh. being a fossil um <laughs> ben proposed this question and i realized that i think i'm the only guy um in this little round table that would have like started going to shows post like punk's huge popularity. So like, if you're going to pose this question, it actually has to be to someone uh, that would be like older than me. Like I'm, you know, what year does Green Day break? 94 or something? 93? Four is when Dookie came out. Okay. Right. And so like, I got into Bad Religion in like probably 92 or 93. Right. So like just right before it, but I'm not going to shows until I'm after 14. So punk's big, you know? And so like, if we're going to talk about it, never being rebellious, like 
that would be like the least rebellious era ever, you know, when it's like at its absolute peak. So, and we all found something in this subgenre of music that we felt was rebellious because we've lived it our entire lives. Right. And so like, maybe you guys all found it before that. So you're more real, but uh, I don't consider that. Like, I think that I'm just as, as into it as all you guys. Um, and I also think that like, you know, the hardcore is like more uh, multicultural now than like ever, which is awesome, which means like more topics are being approached. Uh, more people are being represented and like that is an awesome lane of rebellion. So I think that, uh, I don't know. I can't, I think it's better than ever personally, you know, while like, you know, Benny might be in love with like the 81 sound more than anything. Like as far as like bands pushing the genres within this like scene, I think it, it's, it's just as rebellious now as it's ever been, you know? All right. What do you think? I, me? Yeah. Um, I think it like before that explosion of Green Day offspring rancid in 94, like it was like the, if you were an average American person, you, and you were, you know, under the age of, I don't know, 30, you didn't know that punk ever existed. Like it was completely underground. And to the point where like, like I hear stories about people walking around in the late seventies, uh, you know, punk rockers, and then uh, a Camaro pulls up w and, and like guys with long hair and Led Zeppelin baseball shirts call them Devo F-bomb and like throw crap at them. Like people were yelling stuff at me, but they didn't even know who Devo was anymore. Like this shit was wiped off the map. Like, and like, there's an inherent rebellion in something that you know is going to invite that kind of heat on you. And once that heat is lifted, and I do think it's a good thing that people don't yell shit at each other anymore because they have pink hair. Like <laughs> society has progressed in a positive direction, in, at least in that respect. Like now looking punk or being punk is no longer inherently rebellious. You have to do something rebellious. <laughs> you have to say something rebellious in order to be rebellious. So, so you no, no longer have that inherent rebellion. And like, the thing about like nowadays, if you have, uh, I think of it like a band in 2020, who's, I, I don't know, um, going out and, and marching in the street. And, and, and I can't think of great examples of that, but let's say you all, all the political boxes are checked. I just think of that as a punk band that also happens to be rebellious. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, you, you happen to be wearing a t-shirt and a hat at the same time. The two things are not intrinsically linked to each other. Like you are punk and you are also rebellious. Like, no, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But like, also when you look at like the popularity of some of those shows in the eighties, you know, like going to the Olympic or like going to fenders or going to the country club, you know, and, and thinking about like a band, like instead drawing, like, 600 people you know what i mean or however joe how many people they drawn 600 800 what um i mean they would sell out the so what's uh, the cap uh 1200 okay dude i haven't gone to that many club. shows yeah. that have ever drawn that many fucking people 
Like, and I've been into punk and hardcore for 25 years. You know what I mean? So like, that's, that's the part that gets a little confusing with, with, you know, acting like it's bigger now than it was before or something like, I don't know. I, I, that would be so ill to go see GBH and like have 3000 people be there. Like I don't, the term, the term punk and the idea like, Oh, punk rock, spiky hair, fast music. That idea is implanted is, is more well-known and widespread than it was back then. Your average normal ass person knows is more likely to know what punk is now than back then, even though there were punk shows that were drawing 1200 people. <laughs> Fair enough. But those, sh- those shows were few and far between. So when they showed up, when the show occurred, everybody went from, from the entire area. So it's not the same thing as, you know, uh, as, as, as the punk explosion occurred, and there's 10,000 bands and now nobody goes because there's, you know, 10,000 bands. So you get six people at your show because you're, you're splitting in amongst the other 20 shows that are happening that same night. You know what I mean? Right. Everyone started a band and fucked it up for everyone else, (laughs) but there's still the same number of people, I suppose. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, it it may have increased along with it, you know, standard population increase, you know, but, um, are you guys aware of Pussy Riot? You know about this band, Pussy Riot? Yeah, I watched the documentary. Yeah, so, I mean, to me, what they were doing in 2012, it, it, at least on an, an ethical level, like, you can't get more punk than that. Like, they went to prison for years because they were a punk band that, that stood up for, you know, LGBT rights. Uh, they opposed Putin, who's, a you know, a dictator. And, and they got, uh, got thrown in prison. And like, when, when this was happening, I was like, oh my God, the most punk band that ever existed is happening right now. Like, I can't, I can't believe this. Like, cause even at that point, that's only eight years ago. Like the idea of punk being rebellious was seemed like a distant memory. It was just and as so much I went, performance art as it was rebellious though. Yeah. Right. Did they have a drummer? That's the thing. Like, I don't really under, like I listened to some of their music, like just before we started recording this. And it's like, I guess the early stuff kind of sounds like La Tigre and, and, um, but now it's like, I definitely not identifiable as, as punk music at all. <laughs> well, here's, the thing. Still, yeah. here's what I, I have to say about this. First and foremost, I don't agree that punk has ever lost anything rebellious. And I definitely don't agree that punk was not known by most, most conclaves of society. I think punk has always been, since it has been a thing, has always been known. Maybe you didn't know a punk per se, but you knew what it was. You knew it was a, a subgenre of music that had a rebellious streak. The thing is the punk scene has always since its inception had people at shows that were rebellious and were sharing ideas and were agitators and were doing things and still to this day and it has always had people in the crowd that also didn't give a fuck about that and were there for loud extreme music and that was it you know it it's and punk has done amazing things rebelling against itself straight edge 
the lyrics are rebelling against a stereotype of what a punk is and it's rebellion within it's self-commentary punk will always be rebellious but it will also also have strands that are watered down and and arguably just musically based things i you know punk as an idea is always rebellion punk as a genre contains many many different things well yeah, that's, that's fair because everyone would have heard of the sex pistols at least right ben and most people just well i'm talking about punk like was a, punk was a thing that died like it didn't exist in the 80s to like a normal person maybe well, I mean, like it's always like Quincy. It was on Quincy. It was on chips. The, yeah, exactly. It it always was known by sight. We were leather. In Star Trek, as, when was what? When what year was the Star Trek movie? <laughs> That's well, Star Trek Four. Star Trek Four. The return. No, home. Search for Spock. Yeah. No, it's the Return Home. It's it, he's on a. Oh yeah, San yeah, Francisco yeah. I'm sorry, bus. I'm sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I well, I mean. It, <laughs> You can't quantify something that has so many streams and strains and and layers as boiling it down to one thing. It just doesn't work, and that is almost not punk to think of punk that way. Yeah, I always thought it was kind of funny. Like when I got into it, because you know, liking a lot of that epitaph fat stuff, and then you'd have like the the crusty punks that were like my age or younger. And like looking down on us, you know, like, well, who the fuck are you? Like, we got into this at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know better than me. You know, you just have different friends. Well, and, 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 to, and to go off the people rolling up in a T-bird to beat your ass because you got pink hair. I mean, that's just adolescence in a very patriarchal, macho society like I was walking down the street growing up in England and just not looking at a group of three boys on the other side of the street, because if you made eye contact, you were getting your ass beat regardless of what you looked like, you know, it's just a thing that happens. Punk just gave them an excuse for like, we can recognize those people really easily. Let's go get them. Joe, what's your take on this? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what what in in a roundabout way we're talking um shit now i just lost my train of thought because i was listening to daniel and i was looking up uh the lyrics for macho insecurity because that's pretty much what he just kind of was talking about so you know from the dead kennedys yeah i mean Um, i i can just also elaborate while you while you think joe um like there's not another genre of music that i could do the lyrics that i do in Right. And like, that's my shit, you know, like I love writing lyrics and I couldn't do them in any other genre of music. No, I mean, there's political hip hop. I mean, you listen to a lot of political hip hop. That's true, but I can't, I don't want to write that many bars in a song. Well, I mean, (laughs) the overall point is there are rebellious lyrics in other genres of music as well. Yeah, I know, but I'm too dumb for that lane. So like, this is, this is the only lane that works for my shit. Even in ra- radio friendly music, there's there's rebellion music in there too. So, sure, sure, but I couldn't do "Shut Your Face" on the radio. Although that is like, I think the only song with no cussing on the Retaliate record. It's the only song that could be on the radio. <laughs> Fuck. 
<laughs> Jody, do you want to wrap up this segment? No, go for it. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about that kind of ties into that um, is just do lyrics matter the least in this era than they ever did? And that's not like saying the lyrics have gotten worse or music is more Neanderthal. It's more so just like a technology thing. Um, thinking about the way that we consume music because the majority of people consume music digitally now. Like I still buy physical music, but if I was going to compare the time that I spent listening to records to listen to music digitally, digitally still wins probably. Right. And so, and there's a bunch of people out there that just consume music digitally. And so you're not like getting a physical piece and opening it up and having the lyric sheet be there or having the credits be there. And so I, I just wonder if not the band's output, but to the listeners in general, do lyrics matter less now? And like, what, what do we think about that? And what do we do about it? Um, Daniel, do you have a take on this? I would say no. I would say that they matter just as much as they ever have. If you're listening to something digitally and you are singing along and you're really liking it, and especially if if it is message-based music and you are listening along, there's a thing called Google. And you, the same digital aspect that you're using to listen to the music, you're going to use to look up the lyrics for for most things on Bandcamp or whatnot. The thing is, the lyrics may be less accessible in this day and age, but they don't matter less. They matter just as much. There are as many bands, and especially as as the underground and the youth push society to be better, to get better, to be more inclusive, to, to strive for justice even more in the last five years than you know, we could arguably say in the last 20 before it, these kind of messages have become more and more important and more and more shared. So, you know, the accessibility might be less, but the importance is just as much as ever. Well, I 100% agree on the importance. And I think that in this genre, the lyrics have never been better, like well-written wise, mostly, uh, well, not mostly, but, a reason for that would be that a lot of hardcore is like the hooks. And so a lot of like the tropes have been taken, you know, and, and can't all be recycled. So people have to push the boundaries um, artistically, however well, they want to do that. Well, art is like that regardless. Uh, you know, yeah. there are, there are themes that come and go like the Baroque period versus the romantics versus the Renaissance. If we're talking about, are on a level like that it's just because a group of people pushed each other further to make things forward you know so right now like you say there's a absolutely wonderful spot for lyrics well all the bands that are participating in these scenes are taking influence from each other and pushing further and demanding more and and the people who are listening are demanding more it's just a it's a wonderful you know spring of of ideas that are just going to get better and better as people push forward and push for more. Yeah, this is just something I thought about because, um, you know, the Retaliate record got delayed 
you know, at, at the, the, the plant for like whatever, two weeks, it wasn't even a bad delay, but it got released digitally and it took a couple of weeks for people to get the records after. And, you know, it's, you can't always understand what I say. And I take my lyrics really seriously. And I wanted all these people to like know what I was saying. And I just wish that like, there was something, you know, in Spotify that was integrated that like, you know, like the lyrics can appear or something. Yeah. I, th- I think you're, you're pushing for an addition to the way that most people like either Apple music or Spotify will use those two uh, places to listen to a lot of their music you're pushing for them to integrate what happens on a band camp or, or something like that to be within their program. Well, and I think that it, it's going to go that way because Spotify to get your music on there, you have to, you actually have to submit all your lyrics. So they have them. It's probably something they're working on, you know, but I, I just wish that it was a little like more upfront, you know, and well, just, that's a massive thing to retroactively go through and add all the lyrics. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I'm just for the mass populace of people that are consuming music now, you know, it's, it's just different than when you bought an LP or a CD and it was there. And like, that's kind of like a, I don't know, an immersion that you have, right? Like you unpackage the CD or the LP and you put it on the player and then, when you listen to it for at least the first five minutes, you kind of just peruse what the package is. Yeah. You know? And if, I just, you, if you're separating, like if you're taking that experience out, I think that there is a, a huge chunk of listeners that are never going to like take that step. But if you're going to, if you're going to look at the experience being different on just that level, you have to take into account the experience being different everywhere because Back then, we would open an LP, we would put it on, and we would pour over the lyrics while listening to it. Right now, many, many, many people will put on a song and then let it take them to another song and to another song of different bands, you know, and let the algorithm take over. Or some people won't even let the song finish. (laughs) You know, there's that kind of attention span that's happening sometimes. Like I work with a person that doesn't even finish a song he's already oh i gotta put this one on next so you know he's so excited about playing all this music but he's not actually listening to any of it i just think that's why i don't smoke weed anymore (laughs) that's what i would do i would like sit there on my fucking laptop and listen to 30 seconds of every song yeah yeah so i should drug test him then (laughs) (laughs) uh ben on this yeah, I was wondering, Zach, um, did you put the lyrics to the new Retaliate album on Bandcamp? Uh, no, so that's something I got to figure out. I think Dave puts it up on the Indecision Bandcamp for all the bands, right? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, but I'm not really sure. There. This is just something I thought about, like, you know, today for doing this. I, I didn't the, do research. And the, the lyrics are not there on Bandcamp. That's why I asked you the other day for the lyrics. Oh, for, yeah. Uh, for so episode one. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, I, and I was going to ask you for the lyrics, but I I, did, I knew I was going to I knew I was going to buy the record, so I just bought the record, and now I have the lyrics. Joe yeah, just wanted to see if he was name dropped as well as mentioned in the title. On <laughs> <laughs> the song title, but I'm going to get a shout out in the song, right? Well, what the fuck? <laughs> no, I know. So like, I'll work on getting all that integrated. That's like, I don't know. It's it's just interesting. I. I, I pose these questions because I want your guys' opinions. I, I uh, you know, a, a, as a kid, 
we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't have a lot of records. We did have some, but um, but like all the all the friends, like you know, Forrest would buy these records, and Rob would buy these records, and we bought these records, me and Davi, and then you know, so like we kind of shared those, and then we would just make cassette tapes of all of that stuff because that's that's all we could do, right? And then I had a, a spiral notebook that. If I was at Forest House, I would sit down. You know, he had "Can I Say?" So then I sat down and wrote all the lyrics out on a page. You know, that's that's. I don't know that that's important to everybody because not everybody cares about lyrics. You know, I remember. So, um, so I had a bootleg CDR of um, the SSD. Kids will have their say and get it away. And I went to Ebullition and I asked Kent to photocopy the. Um, the lyric sheets from the original record because the bootleg didn't have the lyrics. And I, he, we walked to Kinko's together and he kept on, he, he'd photocopy it, all the lyrics. It was pretty cool. And it was like that shit mad. Cause you can't really tell what spring is saying in a lot of those songs. So, and, and it really mattered to me. I wanted to know what the fuck he was singing. Yeah. So, and, and, and Kent understood like how important that shit is. So it was cool of him to do that. And well, I think ma- it's cool. <laughs> what were you saying? I, I was going to say how many times have you, had a song on a mixtape like obviously this is dating ourselves again fossil core to the max (laughs) but how many times did you have a song on a mixtape for ages and you thought it was saying one thing and then when you actually got the real lyrics you're like oh oh fuck i am an idiot (laughs) yeah well every single misfit song yeah yeah you know you know what should happen and and um hopefully this will one day is Discogs. When you go to a record to look at the, a record on Discogs, why can't? Well, maybe some people. Maybe sometimes people do it. Um, nope, they do. <laughs> I'm I'm at the uh, the Stains. You know the the band that became MBC. I'm looking at their first seven inch, and I'm flipping through the photos, and they actually do have photos of the lyric sheet itself. So that's what you know. Yeah, it just depends on who uploads it. Yeah, right. how the quality also, of that like photo. how high res it is. Because yeah. I've I've used Discogs a lot for that. Like, is this guy on this record? You know, and I'll I'll go look at it and it's like it's so low res, like you can't read like the lyrics or whatever. But uh the cool thing about uh that record is the B side is a song called Born to Die. The A side is John Wayne was a Nazi. So the B side's Born to Die, and the chorus is um, no war, no KKK, no fascist USA. And a couple of years ago, I started hearing people at protests um, say, no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA. And I thought, are they reciting MDC lyrics? And they, they are. are. Like, yep. like MDC wrote those, like, they didn't take that from some other, you know, protest chant. They made that shit up. And so, like, lyrics matter more than ever now, but you know, 99.9% of people chanting that have no idea that they're actually chanting punk lyrics, but it still matters. Totally. Totally. Any other takes on this topic before we move on? Punk is forever. Yeah, that's right. All right. The last thing I wanted to ask, this is another Ben question was just, uh, what is the best hardcore punk record that was ruined or almost ruined by bad production? And Ben, let's go to you first since it was your idea. I have a few, but I think you have one, so I'm not going to use it. The f- I have there's three that stick out of my mind, and they're all late '80s New York hardcore records. Well, and I think it's just a do, coinc- all, do all three, and we can brush on them. 
Okay. I think it's a coincidence because I don't think any of them were all recorded at the same place, but bold speak out, um, sounds terrible and it's a good record. Um, token entry Jaybird is a great record that sounds really bad. And, uh, underdog vanishing point is the third one. Oh, and that one sounds awful. Yeah. And, and Dr. No, the guitar player of the bad brains, produced that token entry Jaybird album and i looked him up to see what else he produced he produced the second scream album this side up the second Warzone album open your eyes second token entry album Jaybird, and then Warzone sound revolution and that's it those are the those are his, his credits and all three of these records mainly token entry and underdog suffer from this kind of 80s especially the second half of the 80s like overly reverbed out like let's throw let's just dump reverb all over this thing to make it sound like they're playing in a big auto big empty auditorium yeah for some reason that'll make the record sound bigger but it really doesn't it just makes it sound far away makes it sound like it's in a cave and you're not even in the cave hearing it you're like outside the cave like 100 yards away like i hear (laughs) i hear people playing music somewhere in there and it's just like Dude, Jaybird and the token entry, anyone who saw them, I didn't see them. You know, that's not my era and it's New York, but like everyone is like, that band was amazing. And it's like, I can totally picture, you know, token entry doing the fire at CB's in 80. Yeah, but the fire's on the streets. And people it? flipping out. Yeah, um, it's the seen? first song on Jaybird. Is it also on Beneath the Streets? I think so. It's it's a fucking jam. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's the first song I gave um, you. I, I think a lot of the um, music being echoey and reverby like that wouldn't stand out as being so bad if the vocals didn't sound like they were down and like a long hallway <laughs> away from the actual microphone, you know? Uh, all yeah. three of those records. You'd, well, actually, Bold is just just kind of a bad recording. It's not necessarily suffers from the reverb apocalypse that the other two do. But yeah, I. It's just a shame that you know that that was in vogue at the time. And here's another. Here's another kind of. Um... I don't shameful is maybe too strong of a, of a term, but one of these records it's, it's either token entry or no, it's um it's underdog vanishing point. It's produced by Don theory, but recorded at, at a studio that wasn't Don theories. And it's like, why didn't he just do it at his own studio? And that shit would have sounded incredible. Cause everything at his studio sounded incredible. Like you were already producing the record. You're like, come on, dude. Yeah, D- Daniel, what's your example of this? Well, not necessarily of this, uh, of what Ben's describing, but uh, Madball dropping many suckers. I think the recording is criminal. <laughs> <laughs> the songs are good, but Jesus Christ. And when I say the recording, I'm also including production. Like, no one was pushing Freddie for more enunciation or, <laughs> you know, it just it's those are good songs that to me the recording is just awful. Yeah, luckily like eighty percent of them got rescued on set it off. Exactly. 
you know. And, and, and I also think comparing those two might be hurting the seven inch a little bit, you know, just because you know like the potential because you've heard it set it off. Yeah, but then you know, arguably the production goes up and up with each album to yeah. an extent, you know. Yeah, yeah. With Hold they, It Down being near perfect, right? Exactly. They get better and better and they know what their sound is. Obviously he gets better as a vocalist all the way from like so dropping many suckers is his first sort of adult style vocals. Do you know what I mean? Since he was a little kid earlier. And it just it just yeah, it's just a bad recording. But yeah, those songs are saved on set it off. And those songs are great. It just if you listen to them and imagine you never got set it off, would it have resonated as much? I don't know. I think just because the songs are so good. Um, and Freddie's got to be, I think, 16 on that 7-inch, somewhere yeah. around there. He's like pre-18 because he's 19 when they do the New York Hardcore documentary, which is 95. Yeah, and and uh, the the Bulldog in the Pittsburgh Steelers jersey was just a puppy during Dropping Many <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what's your example of this? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, like probably uh, Blood, Sweat, and No Tears and Just Look Around. Both of those sound terrible. I love Just Look so, Around. But they're so good. Those songs are so good. I just hate that production on both of them. Just Just Look Around is better. But Just Look Around is pretty pro sounding, but what is in vogue is still in vogue um blood sweat no tears is from the same recording era at that of the two records ben is yeah yeah. and maybe anything else on mystic (laughs) everything on mystic (laughs) except for the false confession seven inch yeah i guess yeah they dodged the the bullet that day yeah i mean if you (laughs) want to talk about mystic we can talk about the the land of no toilets i mean that guitar yeah God damn it. You know, it's rough. Well, remember when you were record, uh, gonna do the interview with that guy from Mystic? I was like, <laughs> ask him about the reverb chamber that like every band had to walk through. <laughs> he brought it up. We talked about it. Everyone check out the Philco Raves interview. Yeah. Yeah. What's um, the, the history of that that recording studio? They does that date back to the 50s and 60s, the where all those Mystic bands played? I'll get Doug Moody on and he'll, uh, he'll <laughs> lay it all out. Um, but, I have uh, a question for Joe. The Sick of It All 7-inch on Revelation, the first one, the self-titled one where they're standing in the alleyway, uh-huh. all those songs were re-recorded for Blood, Sweat, and No Tears. So how would you compare? Yeah, see, the 7-inch sounded better. Right. A lot of people I, I agree. disagree, though. Yeah. A lot of people love that Blood, Sweat sound. Yeah, I love Blood, Sweat, No Tears. I yeah. think it's great. I think that just look around. I think it's. I don't know. Maybe it sounds a little compressed. But it's super a lot of that's, compressed. Yeah. Yeah, that's just it's it's just because it comes between two records that sound really bright. I think you know, and the one the one before having like such a wild style, and then it yeah. kind of being maybe. You know, it's just it's not scratched the surface yet. But those songs yeah. are so fucking good. I mean, like. Yep. Just like around might be my favorite Sick of It All album. It's it's amazing. It's those songs are amazing. I'm not like again, I'm not well that's the whole the thing, songs. right? We're yeah. saying it, these are albums that we love so much and are just hurt a little bit by production. Yeah. I feel just look around is such a dark, moody record that the production kind of 
reflects that. So I, I won't agree on that one. But yeah, the reverb thing, I would love to hear. Well, I mean, sick of it all, re-recorded a lot of Blood Sweat, right? And I, I, I don't like any band going back and re-recording Glory Days, personally. All right, my example is the first Integrity LP, Those Who Fear Tomorrow. Um, I love it. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. But if they were able to get like a good heavy metal production on this album, I think it's one of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time. And I think it's like mentioned with all the great metal records of all time instead of like a game changing hardcore record. These songs are that fucking good. I don't like, I I don't think I don't think the general heavy metal public is ready for a twid delivery of vocals like that. If it well death metal's already started in 89, you know the the bigger bands. You know, obviously death metal predates that, but like, you know, Morbid Angels 89, the first DSI record I think is 89 or 90. It's all there. You know, I think it could have been I think if that production's there, it's one of the greatest heavy metal records of all time. Um, instead, like I said, it's it's just one of the greatest hardcore game changing records ever. But like, if you were to play it to like a, a dude that only likes heavy metal and is used to like good production, I don't think they would be able to like look past the recording. You know, music is not strictly heavy metal. Like, let's say it's very well recorded. Let's say it's exactly the way you would have liked it to sound but it's the same music and you play it to a metalhead in 91. The music is still like, I hear Cro-Mags and Judge like in there, you know, in addition to the kind of more metal stuff. Like, how is that metalhead going to be like, yep, sounds great. Aren't they going to be like, ew, this sounds like hardcore. I don't like it. I don't know. I think it's more metal, personally. And, oh, yeah, and yeah, I, I love the fact that I'm, I'm arguing to Bedge that uh, integrity sounds metal. Oh, no, no, but I, I, I agree with you, but obviously it's a combination of metal and hardcore, and that's why I would think an average metalhead would still not like it because it has that hardcore influence in it, even yeah. if it's only like 30% or 40%, whatever you want to break it down. I think that's fair. I think that's fair, but you're coming into the 90s too where like metal is, is weird. You know, like death metal yeah. is popping right here. Black metal is going to pop. But like in the traditional heavy metal lane, I mean, this record could have been the the game changer for the entire genre, if like it would have had that big production. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, this is the one I think of, and also I, I would have done, um, yeah, Vanishing Point is is an interesting record with all that reverb. You know, it's, it's strange to me because I think that a lot of like earlier eighties speed metal suffers from like all that reverb and and the crossover other, stuff. Right. Yeah, and the crossover. And so, which, which comes from that too. Like, so it's like, there just must've been an ear for it that loved how it sounded, you know? And I think well, that stuff suffers from it. Like, I think it I goes, goes back to what I was saying about, you know, Baroque romantic, you know, all of those different things, things come and go in Vogue, just the same they do in fashion, you know? Uh, and that sound like it must've been on one great record to start it all. And it was like, Oh, that's the game changer. We've got to get that sound, you know? And now look, it's being repeated. Mind force, et cetera, are doing it 
but in a in a more, much more tasteful level. To, you know, they they're they're messing around with that sound without, uh, but not even close. Well, it doesn't. They they've learned like all of they're those taking, bands have learned from massive. exactly. They're taking the best part of it. Right, and that's what I think is so fascinating. That's another thing. Like this is our last question, but there's another thing that I think is interesting is when people take like the the good lesson but get the wrong side of it. Like one thing that I thought I think was really interesting when I interviewed Fred from False Confession was and I was asking him about how like kind of in '86 all the narco bands kind of changed or or broke up or whatever. And he was saying that one of the most influential al- albums to a lot of people was SSD How We Rock. Like a lot of people like loved it. And like, they're like, fuck, we want to play some shit like this, you know? And, and it's so weird because, you know, as, as coming generations after that, like that album is kind of like an example of what you don't want your band to do. You know, like there's nothing wrong with playing a different style of music, but I would like just break up my band and and do a different style, you know. But I, I just I always thought that was so interesting that an album like that, which I consider like the wrong move, was so influential on so many people. Yeah, I hear um, the Warzone "Open Your Eyes" LP. Like I hear the influence in that because there's this thing that both that and how we rock do is anytime the singer takes a breath the lead guitarist does a wheelie, wheelie, wheelie in between every <laughs> single breath the singer takes. So you have like, like, you know, 35 micro solos in a, in a two and a half minute song. And it's so like, once you are conscious of it, you can't, it ruins it. Like, you're just like, ah, when's he going to do that solo again? Oh my God, there it is again. Like, I can't stand this. Um, but I have a theory about the whole reverb thing in the eighties. Like, Here's here's my understanding or my guess on how these records. <laughs> you mean token entry I- and underdog? Your idea of it that you have convinced yourself is the god's honest truth. I've convinced myself <laughs> this is the god's honest truth. And please chime in if you think I'm way off on this. Yeah, so we'll, let, we'll be the judge. You be the ju- you be the judge of my fucking fate. Yeah. <laughs> in the early '70s, uh, Led Zeppelin did like when the levee breaks. And they recorded John Bonham's drums in this giant stairwell in a mansion. And they mic'd it so that you have natural reverb going upwards. And you have the, you know, those amazing drums you hear at the beginning of the Beastie Boys License Dill album that they sampled. So you have this great sounding natural reverb on these big hard rock records in the 70s. Then by the 80s, digital reverb comes into, is invented. At some point, digital reverb is invented. I don't know when, but somewhere in the eighties, it gets used to approximate the great sounds that were being made naturally on seventies, hard rock records. So now you have all these hair metal records with that are just covered in digital reverb. And then you have hardcore bands that are getting on labels like Caroline and Hawker or in effect or whatever that are like, we want to sound legitimate. We want to sound like a real hard rock or heavy metal record from this era. Of course, now we're talking late eighties. So I guess we better use a shitload of digital reverb because that's the way legitimate, like expensively produced records sound. And so that's my guess on why you have horrible sounding late eighties, hardcore records. 
Well, it's definitely a studio trick to make it sound more high budget, right? Like that's that's what you're going for. But Joe, what do you think about like Slayer Hello Waits? Like, do you like how that sounds or no? Yeah, so that's that's reverb a lot. Um I yeah, I never dug it. Um you know, uh and, and what's what Ben's saying, I, I don't know that I I don't disagree with you, Ben, but I don't think it's digital reverb. I think all that is 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 spring in 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 plate, you know, old school seventies reverb that some studio got and that they're going to, those studio guys have no idea how to fucking use that stuff. I think that's really what it, what it boils down to is they just, okay, don't well, to, he, they don't know how to implement th- th- those, he, those devices. Yeah. Either way it's, it's um, artificial reverb. It's not bands actually playing in a giant room with echoey, you know, echoey room. It's, right, it's right, done, right. Yeah, done yeah. in post or whatever. But the, so, the Slayer example is what I want to talk about too, though, is just because I think it's another example of some bands like learning the wrong lesson, right? Because Hello Waits, I don't think it sounds good. Like it's just, it's a reverb mess, you yeah. know? And those songs are amazing, right? Obviously, you know? But then they get it right. It's like they strip out all that reverb, and the next record is like their game changing classic. And so I don't know why people didn't like learn that lesson of like stripping out the reverb and you get rain, you get rain and blood. And well, it's, the they also got a, a better producer. So well, they, I know, I know Ruben is, a, yeah, uh, fair enough. They had a better producer that said or thought, let's take out all this fucking whack reverb. Right. Right. Like they didn't, they didn't say Rick, nope, we're doing the reverb. And then he like tried his best to do it, he, like stripped it out. You know, and it made it better. So I don't know. Yeah, but Show No Mercy doesn't have, you know, like like that same reverb. So I think it's just the producer that thought that that would be a good idea, because I don't think it's the same producer between those. No, I know, and I can listen to Show No Mercy. I love that. Right yeah, now. you know. And another problem with reverb is, okay, reverb. You've got this, like, you know, maybe uh, maybe a quarter of a second um delay kind of thing you know where you hear the the echo hit the end of the the other side of a giant auditorium or you know that type of sound approximated on a, a piece of equipment so it works if you're playing like led zeppelin like do do da do like really slow big drum beats but if you're playing super fast like speed metal or hardcore it you're playing faster than the reverb hits so it's confusing everything like if you ever play like fast punk, like the few times I've ever played in a really big room, it sounded terrible. And it's because you're hearing the echo hit slower than, than you're, you're actually playing the beat, which is a terrible combination. Yeah. It's, it's why like, you know, a hardcore band sounds not great at Ventura theater, but if you see Blue Oyster Cult there, they sound fucking great. Exactly. Exactly. You know, all right, well, let's wrap around. Uh, closing thoughts, Daniel. You have anything? Um, no. Cool. Joe <laughs> or Ben? I just want to, yeah, throw one more thing about this reverb stuff. The other, the other thing that changed in, in, in you know, from like eighty three, eighty four on is is the amount of squashing compression 
that that came into to, to popular music and and then that worked its way into underground music as well you know by 88 89 so those two combinations of all that reverb and compression it just sounds whack so right ben closing thoughts I think the reverb thing kind of, it, it, it didn't die with the eighties. I think it kind of carried over into the early nineties and then finally bit it. Um, so, and, and I think of that, that compression, maybe it's a different thing. It's mastering, mastering records too loudly. That was a big problem like 10 years ago until everyone complained about it. Um, and that was kind of like an idea of like, let's make, if I'm, if this record's louder than, this other record it'll sound bigger on on the when played on the radio and it like destroyed dynamics so like bands that had really loud parts and really soft parts it all kind of leveled out and it sound all sounded pretty bad so there's yeah there are these like there are these trends that end up you know kind of defeating themselves in the long run because they get carried into uh extreme territories yeah and it all hashed itself out to uh create the perfect album that came out December 4th, Retaliate 4. If you guys haven't Ooh, picked it up, go to indecisionrecords.com and uh, handle business, the uh, the apex of where recording has got us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that. Hopefully you guys uh, had fun here. I did. This was either a great success or a dismal failure. And uh, everyone, shoot me an email, 185mileSouth at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought. Or get at us at social media. Um I enjoy myself. I love listening to these guys wax poetic on shit. And uh, this is just a little bit more open-ended. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And this wasn't a total waste of your hour and a half or whatever. Um, I'd like to do it again. So hopefully you guys uh, enjoy it. And uh, that's all. We'll talk to you next Monday.